Welcome to a wonderful conversation with Indra Adnan, author of the book, The Politics of Waking Up. Indra points out that our two-party competitive system is invested in each other's failure and suggests ways in which we can move beyond this inherently flawed approach and in the process, design a politics that serves us all, enhances well-being and awakening, and uses that well-being and awakening to feed back to a better political, social, and cultural system for the welfare of all. She also discusses the way men's and women's roles are changing and how that too can feed into this new and more healthy way of being and way of relating and sense of politics. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy. And with us today is Indra Adnan, a political innovator from the UK, who has been innovating, creating a new vision of politics and political possibilities, what it can be, what it can do for us, how it can best serve our deepest needs and not just the more material, somewhat superficial perspectives and needs that are usually addressed in our political thinking. Indra is a multifaceted person. She's a psychotherapist, a writer. She's also what she calls a social psychotherapist. And she's a consultant on what she calls soft power. That is not the hard power of military and economics, but rather the soft power of ideas and inspiration. Her clients have included the Danish and Brazilian governments, the World Economic Forum, and NATO itself. She's founded at least two significant political movements. One is the Alternative UK, an alternative political movement aspiring to a broader and deeper vision of what politics can be in the UK. And even broader than that, she has been a co-founder of the Alternative Global, which is a social and political platform serving systemic transformation. It has many functions, including bringing together the many diverse planetary regeneration projects at work around the world, often working without knowing of each other. And Alternative Global seeks to bring these together to coalesce them into a more coherent and effective force. Indra, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and to, to meet you both and to have, have this conversation. Well, us too, because you've been a real, what, you know, as I reflect on your life and work and on your most recent book, Politics of Waking Up, Power and Possibility in the Fractal Age, as I was reading that and reflecting on your life, it seemed that there are a number of themes that run through your work and thinking and that you've been a political innovator who's really sought to reimagine or revision the political and social. And you've brought perspectives to this revisioning of what politics can be and what it can do that have been, some of them, quite unusual. For example, you've been a very deep and committed contemplative, and you've brought also brought integral studies, this big picture framework to bear. And of course, you have your own 
perspective as a woman and your feminist perspective and your uh, attention to relationships and soft power. So there's a lot, and I've only run through a partial list, but let's start at the beginning with the contemplative and spiritual, because that's where you start your book. You start your book in a situation where you're exposed for the first time to the power of a spiritual community affecting an empowerment of a social group, a village. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your contemplative practice and how that's inspired you and informed your vision of politics. Yes. Well, I've been a Buddhist for over 30 years now. I was raised a Catholic and my father came from a Muslim community. My father is Indonesian, my mother's Dutch. And so I was always in the space of bridging between many different religious traditions, if you like. But the most formative experience, probably, the most formative experience says, I would say, of my life, one was leaving Holland to move to the UK. And then the second one was the death and then the series of deaths my family had to contend with when, when I was a teenager. So my brother died when I was 11. And then of the seven brothers and sisters that my mother had, six of them died of cancer while I was a teen. And this really propelled me into this very big question when I was still very young, which is, where is my power? You know, what control do I have over my life? I remember the very night that my brother was in a car crash and I pleaded with God to save his life, not really knowing that my brother was probably already passed at that point. But this relationship with a deity, that, as it appeared to me as a child, you know, to use its power to make a difference to my life, in a sense, was broken from that moment on. And throughout my teenage life, I was looking for something to replace that, something that gave me a new sense of, I suppose what I was looking for was a kind of dependency or, you know, something to trust that I knew I could give my life to. I found that it really wasn't there while I was in my teens, and that I had to create my own, if you like, spiritual belief about where my brother was now, who I was now, what life was. And the question around where is my agency continued until I got to Indonesia when I was 22. I guess it was my gap year experience, if you like, going back to see my family. I'd met them once before when I was 13, and then I decided to go and spend more time there in Indonesia, find my roots. And that's where I met Buddhism for the first time. But a very specific form of Buddhism, which was Japanese, Nichiren Buddhism, some of your listeners will be familiar with. And what that was, was not so much inward-looking meditation as chanting. So the chanting was still definitely a way to concentrate the mind but there was a very big aspect of revelation in it as well. So through concentrating the mind, through being able to detach or move into a non-attached space, something could be revealed through that. I described the episode in my book where I went with these Buddhists. At this, at this point, I wasn't chanting myself yet. I was just an observer. I'd gone as a journalist to Indonesia, you know, to write and observe what was going on in a different part of the world. And I've been invited to join these Buddhists on their field trips into, you know, the outskirts and into the jungles, really, around the main cities. And there was one particular village 
called Talawa that we went to. And it was very typical of the kind of visits that we would make. My uncle, who was the leader of this uh, Buddhist movement, would give a lecture in Indonesian. I couldn't understand really what he, what he was saying. But there was always this repetitive phrase that he was using, Ada. What I would hear was him talking in a very soothing way. It sounded very hypnotic almost. And hear him punctuate his sentence with Ada. And I wanted to know later on, what, what does this mean, Ada? What was the nature of that word? And it meant it's there or there is. You know, So typically, when I heard from the translations later on, it was something like, you think you don't have the power, you do. You think there are no resources, there are. You think there is no opportunity, it's there. So this ada was a sort of, if you seek, you will find, or if you pay attention, it will be revealed to you. So this kind of practice you know, was very intriguing to me, especially since on our journeys, I witnessed coming to visit a small village like this, which was typically very dependent on the military aid in Indonesia to deliver food parcels every week. I mean, I don't know how many of the list, your listeners know the history of Indonesia, but there was military rule for decades, and they became very, very successful in being able to deliver food to people and to create networks and to, you know, in a way to hold things together and bring people out of poverty. But the people themselves became quite dependent on this. So a typical village would be that they would be receiving these food parcels, living in relative quiet and peace, but nothing happened. And the young people there would be very impatient, not impatient, but they would like be a bit stuck. You know, there was a stuckness about these places. We'd arrive there would be a lecture. You know, at this point, people were still walking to the river for a couple of hours to get water. It was peaceful, but slow and not developing at all. We would come, we'd hear a lecture, they would talk about the what they'd heard and we'd go. And then maybe six weeks later, we'd come back. And in that very short space of time, things had started to happen already in that small village. People had cleared, you know, cleared space for planting seeds a road was beginning to be built. Somebody had found a way to bring the water closer to the village. Somebody had moved out of their house, of their parents' house, and, and moved into a separate house. I mean, these sorts of small but significant changes had started to happen. And this was the phenomenon I wanted to explore and understand. So it sounds like you saw a, that these people were becoming empowered. And I'm wondering how that... My sense of is that so much of your work has been about taking that into your political vision. Is that, is that what happened for you? No, absolutely. So this idea that we can settle, if you like, for a kind of reality that our parents had, or as far as we're concerned, was always the way of things. You know, this is our life. And then that could be disrupted by somebody coming along and saying, look again, reimagine, pay attention, something else is possible, that that in itself would, would, would cause a shift to happen and then create energy in that space. That, that's what I saw happening, and that's what you're absolutely right. That's what I've been exploring ever since. And what is it in coming now to 
the way you've tried to reinvigorate and re-envision politics, what is it you see us settling for in our usual social political situation? And what do you, what is the more you're seeing that we could be doing and become? So it's a little bit of a story, but if, you know, I'll try to keep it succinct so that we can see that I can answer the point of your question. When we think about the multiple crises that we are facing now, right? So we're in this multiple crisis, the crisis of the environment, the crisis of well-being, the crisis of division. And then you read the newspapers and you're part of a social imaginary, if you like. The sense is that the people are powerless, that they themselves are very dependent on politicians or corporations to make the difference. And in reality, that is the structure that we're living in. So in the States, but you know, also in the, all across Europe and certainly in the UK, only 2% of people are actually signed up to this party political system. Only 2% of people become members, meaning that they think it's worth the investment of their time and money. Most people don't. And the reality is that they only have a vote every four or five years, depending on your system. And then certainly in your country and ours, you only have a choice of two parties, really, in reality, you go left or you go right. And these two parties are invested in each other's failure. This is the really significant thing about the system that we're in, that our agency is trapped in this binary competitive system that, you know, leaves us with no real obvious path to change. Every day you're reading about that in the paper, right, because the media system feeds on that discourse, So every day you're feeling viscerally your powerlessness. And what I'm trying to show to people, when we started to look at this more carefully and we committed ourselves to stepping outside that 2% bubble and looking what is really happening outside of the news as we hear it, we discovered that, as anybody would, the solutions to our problems are already available. The question is, why do we not have access to these solutions? So we made it our job to do three things. We do a daily alternative blog, which talks about the many solutions. And I'll talk a little bit later about how that's structured, but it has a structure. We do the job of connecting where systems conveners, you know, we connect the dots around people that we feel are building this, what Buckminster Fuller would describe as the new system that makes the old one obsolete. But most importantly, we're building and helping to build and drawing attention to what we call community agency networks that already exist on the ground. So community agency networks, which we call PANs, on the one hand are, you know, the natural networks that have always existed, the ones that the women perhaps are creating through their care networks or their family networks or their social networks. These networks have always been present in a way. But over the last 30 years since the birth of the internet, they've been taking shape more consciously and proactively as responses to the climate crisis and the social injustice crisis. So you might think of transition towns or eco-villages or municipalities or in India, neighborocracy or mutual aid networks. There are many, many, many of these cans springing up with the help of technology to bring the solutions that are already available around the globe. So these are local grassroots organizations that are nevertheless able to draw down from all over the world solutions, methods, blueprints even, in a way that we call cosmolocal. So cosmolocal 
community agency networks beginning to be the new system in small ways all over the world. And our sense is that if we can connect these cosmolocal community agent networks together and create a governance apparatus within them, then we have a new way for the people's voice to hear itself and to be heard by the mainstream. So that's kind of a new politics as we see it. Indra, I wanted to ask you a question. Start out like maybe your first sentence. You talked about your Buddhist practice over these years and the chanting and the revelatory aspects of your practice. I wanted to ask you how much of what you're doing now in your life and what you put together has come out of that practice and that revelatory aspect of the tradition you're in and what you're practicing. Yeah, I, I would say it's a natural manifestation of the changes that happened on the inside. So in particular, there's a few things that I would draw attention to. For example, the concept of the three realms, right? So in Buddhism, they would say there's nowhere inside or outside. There's simply the three realms of existence. So we have the personal realm, the sense of ourselves as agents in the world. This is the first realm. The second realm is really the community or the context within which we are being that person. That's the second realm. And then there is everything beyond that, if you like, the third realm. And we call that the I, the we, and the world. So not only our politics, actually, but I would say the, the normal social understanding is that you're either an individualist or you might be a communitarian or a socialist or a globalist, right? But what Buddhism has always used the word claimed, but, you know, helped us seen is that the same person can be all three of those things. So I have a personal world and I defend it and I, it's my sovereignty is very important within it. But I don't need to switch into being somebody else to have a community self. I'm also a member of a family, a member of a friendship circle, a member of my local neighborhood and so on. And I think about the world. So when I think about the world, I'm having an impact upon it. I'm shaping it in a certain way. And how I change my idea about the wider world changes my idea of where my agency lies. So these three realms are essential to an understanding of how we can have agency, even a new political agency, in a sense, taking down these barriers between these three ways of being in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. Your book is titled The Politics of Waking Up. You've spoken about one kind of sort of waking up is that waking up to waking up various communities to each other's presence and connecting them. So that's one kind of awareness of waking up. But ever since your politics of waking up is really aimed at a deeper kind of awakening than that. Would you like to say more about that? Yeah, deeper and more superficial, in fact, because, mm. you know, you, we could look at, look, look at it in two ways. So the, so the waking up, I think the deeper waking up that you're describing is really to do with this oneness of self and environment. You know, in my form of Buddhism, this is called Engi. And Engi really describes the indivisibility of self and environment or past, present and future. So all the separations that we make as material human beings, which help us to, you know, to have traction, if you like, or to help us organize our space, can be dissolved again in a spiritual way. So 
the separateness of the internal and the external can dissolve or the sense that the past is a different place, you know, different, if that happened then, or the future is something that has not yet materialized. From a Buddhist perspective, it's all contained in the present. So waking up to Engi, you know, the non-separation or the interdependence of, of these other spaces is an essential part of that waking up. But in my book, what I'm talking about is a different notion of waking up, which is that you know, since the birth of the internet, say over the last 30 years or a bit more, because of the availability of information, we went from, you know, this relationship with information that we used to get it from above, in a sense, it was our teachers, it was our bosses, it was our politicians that edited the kind of information that we would be able to get access to. And then suddenly, in a very short period of time, that changed, and we were able to not only receive information from everywhere, but start to generate that information ourselves or proactively go and look for something or put two things together that couldn't be put together before. At the same time, this sense of waking up to your capacity for connecting and mobilizing, bringing people together, the miracle, I don't know, the first time you use a hashtag, for example, and find that you can, in a lightning instant, you know, connect with a global community of people who are interested in what you're interested in. You know, when I used hashtag soft power, for example, a global community of people interested in soft power. You could do the same with, you know, hashtag multicolored socks, if you like. <laughs> you know, whatever it is that you wanted to find your tribe, it was suddenly an instant possibility. And the third thing about that is, this, is that you could begin to see yourself in the public space. So women, maybe even more than men, maybe not used to seeing themselves as much in the public space, could suddenly put themselves in the public space. Or young people or you know, anyone with technology could suddenly build their own world with them in it. So this is a radical shift of agency happening over this 30 years. I mean, Unless you'd lived through it, you probably wouldn't know how steep that curve was. I mean, certainly my son hasn't got a clue. He has no idea what we didn't have before and what he was born to have. Only we will know, you know, what difference that made. But that radical stepping into some sense of presence, connectivity, agency, as we know, caused a lot of chaos. It's, I'm not pretending that that was an uncomplicated good thing. It was just a very, very new space. But what we saw as a result was people waking up. So, of course, there were the entrepreneurs who could make a lot of capital out of this new connectivity. But the other side of it was people learning for the first time, especially underprivileged people, learning for the first time about why they were in the situation they were, you know, mm. realizing it's not my fault I'm in such a difficult position because of what they can learn and what conversations they can have. And this has caused, I suppose, what we would now describe as the woke phenomenon. You know, people feeling not only their pain, but also mobilizing now and sharing that message with others. So you describe the recognition, firstly, the finding of community and the, the recognition that our situation is multi-determined. And you mentioned women coming into these public communities in a way they haven't before. And we've both been wondering, well, how has your experience as a woman 
informed and enriched the political vision you're creating? It's, it's not necessarily very easy to describe, Roger, to be honest, because it's not an empty space. You know, it's not like an empty space that you could simply occupy. Feminism, you know, has a history and it has determined the ground for women in many ways in terms of what is being said about female power or female subjugation, or, you know, there's a huge and rich history there. So, you know, whatever it is that I might add to that, we're moving into that space. But I'd like to think that through my interest, from my point of view, that what can move better into the public space now is the way that women work, in a sense, the way that they themselves see possibility and the future, which is beginning to become more and more distinct from the socioeconomic political system that we have accepted as real. So the way I like to think about it is that, you know, for centuries, women were really in the private and the domestic space more than in the public space. And that our public space, as we understand it, its institutions, its structures, its power bases, was mostly designed by men. But, you know, women were always very active, building a different kind of private space that did the work of supporting communities, supporting the men themselves, supporting their families. That was just as profound and just has as much architecture in it, is every bit as active, but in different ways than the public space was. And what the internet has done is really, again, dissolve the lines between these two things and make a more feminine way of structuring and organizing more visible. So I would include in this, for example, the way that we now talk about networks. You know, this is the way we always organized in families and communities. It was always dependent on networks rather than dependent on individuals. And that obviously has already moved, you know, concretely into the public space. But there's also something about a more relational way of being that women have depended on to get their work done, which has not been so easy to understand in the public space. In the public space, you have to build the architect, in a sense, build the bureaucracy that makes that thing accountable. Whereas now more and more, we see that there is power in this more narrative, storytelling image-led, emotionally intelligent way of operating that has become as popular. Could you give us a, a concrete example of what you're talking about, like how that plays out or what you're seeing? Uh, how, how it's actually changing. Well, I mean, you might say that what we're doing now is that kind of, you know, we're in conversation now and something is real and concrete about the way that we are, through our conversation, imagining a different future, creating a new imaginary. This is really what soft power is, it doesn't depend necessarily on, you know, first we have to build the foundations, then we have to materially build the institution before something can arise. It's arising all the time. And we can even depend on it and rely on it as something that will have agency and, and be able to achieve certain ends. So this to me is a more... It's a more dense, more, Karen O'Brien describes it as a quantum way of working, you know, working through relationship without having to necessarily pin down the coordinates of every relationship. We're doing that more and more. So take, for example, the power of social media is very similar to that kind of power. It has an agency of its own. However, it needs containing. That's 
also very much a feminine idea. It needs incubating, right? So if you think about the energy of that social media, which has no system of incubating and containing itself, it's not self-organized. That's why it looks so very chaotic to all of us. And our proposition is that all of that energy released through the internet can be incubated and self-organized to create a new system that has power in it. So I don't know if that's answering your question, John, but I would say that it's a way of looking at the phenomenon of our lives today that I would say from a feminine perspective looks very positive and very often from a male perspective looks dangerous and possibly looks more like something breaking down. I would say that I've had many experiences like this in rooms where men are talking about everything that is breaking down and how to cope with the breaking down and how to feel in this not knowingness about this current moment in time. And women who are talking about the very same moment in time as an emerging fractal new system of networks and network of networks that is positive and the way to go, mm-hmm. right? So it's quite phenomenal, if you like, that, that these two ways of looking at the same thing can be really quite different. Indra, let me, I'm trying to feel into what I think you're saying. and Let me see if this speaks to part of it. And that is, my sense is that the traditional ways of dealing with power and politics have focused on goals and structure and outcome and making things happen. And what I hear you saying is that for you and perhaps more generally women in general, there tends to be more of a focus on the quality of relationships underlying that. Is that part of it? Yeah, I think that is part of it. And of course, I must rescue myself from saying that this is just women and just men, you know, because men too are actively taking part in this change. Mm -hmm. And women, of course, are also actively in the old system that is crumbling. It's not a strict divide. I'm thinking more about a more feminine, more feminine structures that women easily occupy, if you like. And the old structures, which were historically designed by men, when really working on their own, But now that we're working all more of us together, you know, that line becomes more blurred. But the new structures, what you've described there, relational, you know, understanding that the agency and the power comes from these relationships. That's where people come alive. We can all experience that, you know, that in meeting a new person or meeting someone that isn't part of our usual circle, just in a conversation, new possibilities arise, you know, for those two people. So there's mm. something of this, it's not a simply a line that connects two people, a relationship connects two worlds. And that makes energy and possibility that if properly nurtured in these kinds of incubators that I'm describing, can really lead to very new outcomes for the people that are involved. And I'm I'm getting a sense of that in the moment. What you've been saying has drawn me to focus more on the way the three of us are interacting in this moment. I'm getting a feel for that. And out of our connection, out of our dialogue, there's... uh, I have the opportunity of getting to see things the way you do a little better and 
and open possibilities and appreciate, mm -hmm. oh, appreciate some of the things you're pointing to. So I'm, I'm aware that we're co-creating a kind of microcosm of what you're pointing to, and I, I'm appreciating that. That's great, actually. And, you know, my natural inclination really would be now to interview the two of you. Well, fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm interested to know how, how you see this moment in time and how you, what, what do you feel about these possibilities of this age? Well, let's make it sure, sure this goes all ways. All of us share in this, so it's exactly what you've been pointing to, the possibility of collaborative birthing of something more than each of us alone has an understanding Briefly, what comes to mind for me is just how do I see the current age? I see it as an enormously complex time of crisis and opportunity, the outcome of which could span all the way from the collapse of our civilization and the near extinction of our species to a birth of a new individual, personal, transpersonal, social, political ways of being the likes of which we have not seen, which we can't even fully envision at this moment. And I'm fully agnostic about how it will turn out. And I assume it will turn out, how it will turn out will be a function of how we approach it. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the deep transformation, the vision, when we were first discussing this, it was to try to go deeply into what will help us transform and mm. either it's kind of transform or die. In other words, we, we need to kind of really to get together as a human family or we're not going to get together at all. And so far I've been, you know, my, I've been transformed by the conversations and the connections and the readings and this. But about 30 years ago, maybe maybe more than that, I, I came across a book. Well, I was working with Fritjof Kopp at the time. It's his assistant in grad school. That was mm. the turning point. This I love the man. Great respect for him and his work. And he gave me the book Beyond Power by Marilyn French, which I don't know if people still read Marilyn French, but it was like the feminist you know, Bible at the time. It was a big, mm. powerful book. And I was blown open by it. I was like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> and, and I, was, I felt so bad as a man, you know, because I really then my question. Can I be a feminist? You know, finally, the, I said, OK, yeah, I think I can be. And I talked to, you know, the women around there and said, OK, I'm a feminist. Well, isn't that nice? Yeah, that, that feels a lot better. But I would also like to ask you, because we're men, we're here and we're getting a lot of heat, deservedly, in many cases. But what do you want from us? What would you like us to hear as a woman who's, you know, in this kind of cutting edge of, of looking for answers and bringing us together in new healing, powerful ways? What can we do to be part of that more effectively? Yeah, I mean, it's thank you so much, John, for asking that question, because women are waiting to be asked that question all the time. That may surprise you, because they feel we have to push our way in. There is a bit of a phenomenon right now of men studying the feminine and claiming it, right? So even now, it, it happens a lot that men will explain the feminine in the public space and still not invite the women. And you'll see that the phenomenon still exists that men continue to lead the public space. They may include women, meaning they'll give women a role to play in their, in their structure in some way. But the real interest is that they talk to each other most of the time still, even now. And I know it's a very dangerous thing, and apologies to the trans community or anybody who feels they're not included in this discussion about men and women. But 
believe me, you are included because we're really talking about a historical divide and different ways of working. But what we can't ignore is that in the question of nature and nurture, we can't ignore that they collude, right? That because of our different natures, therefore we have been differently nurtured. We find ourselves with quite different roles and quite different histories. To my mind, there's no requirement for a man to be more like a woman unless that person chooses. You know, I'm not looking for a world which is all now adapting to the feminine. The men should be able to continue to be men and to find satisfaction in being men. However, they have to make way for more women. And that's not an easy thing to do because I find that men are so wired to be the dominant species that they haven't even got the experience to know what making space for someone else really feels and looks like. So making space for someone else is sometimes including them, you know, in the project or giving them a role to play, as I described before. But really making space sometimes means giving up your seat, ironically, letting someone else take that moment in the spotlight to say something that needs to be said it's making space. And that, doesn't, that isn't just for women. It's also for all the excluded people of the past. We say that when women are fighting for space, it's not for themselves, it's for everyone else that was also excluded in the history of white men dominating the space. To make space is to make space for everyone. So there's quite a lot of moving over required. And I find that that is difficult to achieve. But more than that, no, it's not that the masculine energy can disappear from the system. It really mustn't, you know. And the yangness, I think from the yin-yang perspective, I like to think of yang as more in the public eye, in the spotlight, where the light is. And the yin is more the context, you know, around that light. Yin is not a bad place to be at all. And women have mostly occupied the yin space over centuries. But now is the time for that, moving with all of their knowledge and architecture into the light more. And it may be the time now for men to step back more into the yin and learn more about themselves and about their homes and about their children and so on. So that from a yin-yang perspective, that gets more balanced between male and female ways of acting and ways of working. I don't know if that answers your question, John, but it's certainly been an ongoing question for me. And, and yeah. you know, I realize we're struggling with this. We're kind of trying to come to a better, better balance. Yeah. And we've been times where masculine and feminine gender identity, and obviously there's some women that are super masculine and nobody needs to make room for them because they just, boom, they move in. And then there's men that are really feminine who are, you know, so it's, it's this mix. I, yeah, I but probably, oh, maybe his awareness, as in my case, when I became aware of mm. The assumptions I was giving from my culture about women. Uh, my mom was, you know, a very powerful woman, sweet woman. She just did her thing and she never felt that she was anybody was her boss. So I just grew up with this woman who was really happy in her own space and she had a very successful business and people just adored her. But somehow she was, she had a great deal of innocence too, because she didn't pick up that there were any injustice in the world. She just did her thing with great joy and efficacy. So that's kind of my, my, and then when I got into the world, yeah, I started seeing that. And I've also seen in my lifetime that there's been a lot of progress made in a lot of areas, in racial areas and, and women coming to the fore. And these processes are often painful. 
you know, and you're going to have your, you know, your resistance, your conservatives that fear that what they value is going to be destroyed by the new wave. And then you have people that see no value in the old ways that want to just do everything new. And here we are trying to find wisdom and act with compassion and act effectively. And it's a, it's a tall order, but it's, I think it's what we're being called to do. So if, yeah, the more you can let us know what you need from us. <laughs> I can't be a spokesman, but I would say partnership is a good plan. Yeah. You know, partnership is a good plan. Stay tuned for part two of our discussion with Indra Adnan as she dives deeper into the future of politics, the changing roles of men and women, and the ways in which we can find fulfillment in our political activities, our social lives, and our individual and collective maturation. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.